Welcome to the Family Biz Show. According to Family Enterprise USA, family businesses in the U.S. account for over 64% of GDP and employ 62% of the workforce. In other words, they are the backbone of our economy. But success doesn't come easy. Only 13% are operating in the third generation. The Family Biz Show is here to help. Listen in weekly to hear stories from other family businesses and industry thought leaders so that you and your family not only survive, but thrive. Welcome, everybody, to the Family Biz Show. I am your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. We have an awesome show lined up for you today. We're going to be talking about uh, planning considerations for the family enterprise. And we've got Gary Katz and Jerry Stack with us. And welcome, gentlemen. Thank you, Mike. Glad to be here. Um, here, Mike. I, I got you. What we, what we typically do is love to have each of you kind of introduce yourself, give us a little bit about your journey, how you got to where you are today, and especially, you know, the times that, you know, uh, working with family businesses through, the, through your career. And then we'll dive in and uh, we'll start asking you some questions about some of the technical things that are going on in the, in the world today. It's a big year in front of us, isn't it? Yes, it is. <clears throat> Jerry, you want to go first and I'll follow up with my introduction? Yeah, absolutely, Gary. Glad to. So I'm Jerry Stack. I'm a lawyer with the law firm of Barclay Damon in Syracuse, New York. I uh, graduated from Syracuse University College of Law many years ago. Uh, then I went on to the University of Florida to uh, get a master's degree in tax law. And I returned to Syracuse, where I've lived my entire life, uh, to practice law, first with a law firm called uh, Hancock and & Estabrook. And then I switched over to Barclay Dame about 16 years ago. So my practice has focused on uh, closely held businesses, uh, you know, sales and acquisitions, as well as estate planning for owners. I've been around long enough now uh, that I represent the grandfather, the, the parents, and now the grandchildren in family businesses. Uh, so it's been a big part of my practice for the 40 plus years that I've been a lawyer. Uh, and so I'm glad to be here. And thanks for having me, Mike. Great. Thanks for joining us. Mr. Hey, hey, Jerry, I don't know how that's possible when you just turned 39. <laughs> <laughs> I wish. I wish. That's a long time ago. Let me tell you, a long time ago, Gary. <laughs> so a quick introduction. Uh, myself, uh, my name is Gary Katz. I'm with Sagemark Consulting. I'm a wealth preservation specialist. I will be with Sagemark Consulting, I can't believe it, but on April 26, which is coming up real soon, it'll be 33 years. And I, like Jerry, started when I was six years old. So uh, what, I, what I do is the financial planning aspects of wealth transfer, wealth pres preservation, business succession. And what I do is I help people transfer their assets to who they want, when they want, in the manner that they want, protecting the people that they're transferring their assets to and reducing the taxes. And boy, I wish it was as easy as just what I just said, but it's a highly 
complex process. So uh, when I work with uh, Michael and his clients uh, and Jerry, uh, we, Michael and I act as the architect from a financial perspective, because uh, the whole process is as much a financial process as a legal process. We don't replace people like Jerry. We collaborate real closely with people like Jerry. The financial and legal and accounting process all has to collaborate and work together. So that's a quick introduction on me. Great. Again, thank you both for joining us. Um, this was, uh, you know, when when we started to book the show, it, it was back in 2019 or 2020. We started talking about getting the two of you on here. I'm glad to get you here because this is a year that is just packed with changes probably bearing down on us. Um, you know, sometime this year, there's uh, some proposals on the table right now. And so we're going to dive in and talk about some of those things that are going on. Um, I want to kick us off. There's, there's eight questions that, you know, Gary and I have talked about, and Jerry, I'm sure that we, you know, we'll get your feedback and your input on these things that just about every business owner, you know, should be talking about and asking themselves. And so what I thought I would do is just kind of, you know, I'm going to just quickly hit the eight questions. Um, you not everybody can see these, see them. If you wanted to, you could reach out to um, Gary or myself, and I'll get you a copy of this, you know, but um, feel free, you know, to listen in here carefully. It's here's the eight questions and we'll just dive into them. One, have you decided when you want to exit from your business? You should be asking yourself this question on an annual basis. Um, have you decided what amount of cash or annual cash flow you will need to exit to support your preferred lifestyle? Have you decided to whom you want to transfer your business? Do you truly know how much your business is worth today? Do you know how to sell your business to an outsider and pay the least amount of taxes? Jerry, we're going to have you chime in on that one a bunch. Um, do you know if your business is even marketable? Do you have a plan for your business if the unexpected happens to you? And have you taken the steps to protect your family's wealth? And so, you know, what I thought I'd do is, you know, Gary, why don't you chime in on a, on a, on a few of those pieces, maybe some of the ones that, as I've said them, you thought about and you're like, you know, these are some of my favorite things to talk about. And then I'll flip it over to Jerry to, to do the same. Sure. Th thanks. Thanks, Michael. So the first question, have you decided when you want to exit from your business? That is really a financial independence question. So one of the most difficult parts of looking at things when you're a business owner is all business owners divide what they, their living expenses, the business covers a bunch of them and they have some of those things covered personally. So for the things that the business covers, you gotta do an inventory because those things, depending on what the tax rates are gonna be, are gonna be different costs after taxes. So if your cars, uh, your country club, your boats, um, dinners, travel, et cetera, et cetera, whatever the business is paying for, if you pay for that personally, that's gonna be $1.30 to $1.40 more. So really the first part of deciding when you wanna exit your business is do you have 
what do you need for your financial independence and what is your value gap for your preferred for your preferred lifestyle so um that to me is the first step in that planning because a lot of people that mike and i know we've spoken to and worked with they don't know what their actual expenses are if they don't have the business covering a bunch of them uh, so jerry i thought maybe you can just address that in a transaction and how the the recasting of earnings and things of that sort is real important how you pull things out that you take out personally from the business and then i'll come back to some of those questions yeah no that's right and the only thing i'd add to what you said gary is uh if you got to plan what you're going to do in retirement it's, it's probably true with your clients as well i've had so many clients retire and then a couple years later saying you know, it wasn't quite what I expected. Maybe I was a little too early pulling the plug. So you really got to think through on a personal level, whether you're ready to take that step back. Uh, yeah, just, just with that, we can give, we have a checklist, 10 questions I, you need to think about. We have both the uh, owner of the business and the spouse of the owner fill that out. And it talks about the things you'll do charitably, what you'll do socially, what are you gonna do for intellectual stimulation? We have 10 questions. And uh, I'll, we'll forward that to everybody. But we always have people go through that exercise uh, even before they look at the financials. Great, great observation, Jerry. Yeah, no, that's an excellent, excellent suggestion on your part. So, uh, so you know, as you, when you take the money out, you can take it out either as a tax deductible item uh, or uh, comes out as either a dividend or distribution dependent on the type of uh, business that you have. Uh, and so we, we try to generally take money out on a tax deductible basis, simply because uh, you avoid the double tax, you know, uh, so, uh, it, but it's difficult sometimes to recast, particularly personal expenses as, as business expenses. So typically, you know, you increase the compensation, set up a deferred compensation plan, uh, to fund things after retirement or items like that in order to get uh, tax deductible for the for the money you're pulling out as opposed to pulling it out with pre-tax dollars. Great. Jerry, I'm going to bounce around on some of these questions and we don't need to go in order and we don't need to hit them all because we've got, you know, just a, a limited amount of time here. But when we, you know, one of the questions is, do you truly know how much your business is worth today? And when we're talking to business owners, one of the things you know, I, I see it really often is business owners either really overestimate what the value of the business is or really underestimate. They're very rarely are they dialed into that number. Do you want to talk about that a little bit, Jerry? Yeah, you know, you're absolutely right. <clears throat> like that happens all the time. Uh, and we generally turn to a business valuation expert. Uh, sometimes the CPA firm can do it, but sometimes they're not really confident to do it. So there are companies or firms uh, that specialize in value in business. That, that's all they do is value your business. And a jumping off point is to find a firm like that that you're comfortable with. And there's a lot out there who do an excellent job. You know, some national ones we work with on a regular basis that are not frightfully expensive. Uh, they'll come in and they'll do a complete analysis of what the business is worth. <clears throat> and they have a database that allows them access to numerous transactions, far more than a CPA firm could come up with to see what businesses like that are trading for in the market. You know, it's almost always a multiple of EBITDA, you know, earnings before interest, tax, depreciation, amortization, but those multiples can vary 
great leap from industry to industry and business to business. You know, we, we're seeing now in the marketplace multiples as high as nine times EBITDA. Got a deal now going on for 10 times EBITDA. And we've seen them for as low as three times EBITDA. So it's a really unique uh, what's going on in the market, you know, your customer concentration risk uh, and things like that. But it, it's a combination of the business valuation and having someone come in and take a look at that earnings before interest taxes and depreciation to make sure it's an accurate reflection. So what you're trying to do is adjust it and back out those items that a buyer would not have. <clears throat> so like Gary mentioned earlier, a lot of businesses are taking a lot of personal expenses out <clears throat> as deductible expenses. Well, that reduces your earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization. So you want to add those back in so you get a more accurate picture of what the EBITDA actually is. <clears throat> it would generally be a multiple of EBITDA in most situations. Sometimes it's a gross uh, number, you know, gross receipts, but more often than not, it's a uh, multiple of EBITDA. <laughs> One other thing real quick, Jerry, when you're talking about um, business valuations and getting those done, who should be ordering those business valuations and why? Yeah, so we, we always order them as the law firm. And the reason for that is we want to protect it with the attorney-client confidentiality. And so particularly if we're thinking of a gifting program, uh, we want to make sure so when the when the business valuation comes in, it comes in a draft form. And you know, we'll go through it, we'll make a bunch of comments, we'll ask the account firm to make some comments on it, and we'll try to shape it, you know, within within realm of reasonableness, not not being absurd about things. But many times the initial draft or the, the second draft, they get it wrong. And so the worst thing that can happen is the IRS agent comes in and says, Well, I see you got a business valuation. Show me all the prior drafts that you had so I can see the changes you made from one to 10. If the client orders it, IRS is perfectly entitled to get their hands on it. If the law firm orders it, it's protected by the attorney-client privilege. IRS is not allowed to see those prior drafts of the valuation. Love it. So just to add upon that, it really depends on what your ultimate goal is. If it's a Interfamily transfer, you typically are trying to get the lowest amount value amount from, from a gift tax perspective. Uh, and also very often we recap the company to voting and non-voting and the uh, starter off uh, the, the, the founder of the business typically is gonna keep the voting share. And then what they're gonna do is get a discount on the non-voting share and the non-voting share is going to be uh, what you're going to transfer to family members or a trust for family members. And the discounts are anywhere between 30 and 45%. Sometimes a little bit more, sometimes a little bit less, depending on the limits of the, the non-voting shares. So that, that if it's a, that's a, if it's an inter-family transfer. If, for example, uh, the, the transfer is to an outside party and there's no family involved, it's just the opposite. You're not looking for the lowest possible value, you're looking for the highest possible value. So very often the investment bankers will lead that charge to do that business valuation uh, versus the, um, the, the, the gifting perspective. Uh, also other transfers, for example, if it's, an, if it's an ESOP, that probably is gonna be a little bit higher because that's an ERISA plan. 
don't see a lot of ESOPs, but we do see some ESOPs. So that's a very important uh, evaluation plan. And depending on what type of corporation you are, an ESOP can have some tax advantages to the to the owner and also to the uh, the, the new owners. Um, so that's the big difference between an internal transfer versus a family transfer versus if it's going to be a gift sale to family members. Great. Wonderful point, Gary. And, you know, just for uh, those listening, um, Gary Brick brings up an interesting point on ESOPs. And just a plug for a future episode, we got Rob Brown and Tracy Till coming on to talk about ESOPs and the family business in a, in a couple episodes coming forward. And Rob Brown is probably one of the preeminent attorneys in that ESOP world um, and uh, happens to be right here in upstate New York. Um, Gary, let's talk about, you know, so we've, we've talked about, you know, the value of the business, um, whether somebody's decided to exit, but you know, hit real quick on the question of what about the unexpected? What happens if the unexpected happens? Why is sure. that? Happen? So uh, people have different uh, definitions of unexpected. The, the unexpected could be how did COVID expect, uh, affect my business, which uh, uh, essential businesses, it actually was just the, uh, um, it was a positive for non-essential business. Uh, unfortunately, it was a it was a negative. So those things uh, you get a, are very difficult to plan for. Uh, but some of the unexpected things, which are not fun things to talk about, are things that you can plan for. God forbid if you, you or a key important person got disabled. Uh, also, um, God forbid you or a key important person passes away. So those are some of the unexpected things to look at and Listen, from a sales perspective, uh, sometimes some of the companies we look at, half the sales may come from the top salesperson. And if that salesperson got disabled or passed away or was grabbed by a competitor, what can you do to uh, absorb the shock of that person either leaving voluntary or involuntary? There's some really cool things you can do with some very creative designs where, uh, for example, and we do it all the time, we can put golden handcuffs in for the important people where they'll get uh, a tax-free synthetic equity uh, retirement benefit. And at the same time, God forbid, if they passed away, death benefit to their family, but also death benefit back to the company to uh, relieve the shock of that person passing away or, 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 or getting disabled. So that's some of the things you can do to cover the, the un, unexpected. Great. I'm gonna, I'm gonna move away from th those eight questions. And again, if anybody would like a copy of those questions that they'd like to get a hold of, you can email you know, us at the show. You can contact Gary um, through uh, LinkedIn. Uh, whatever, whatever works for you. Mike, uh, before you do that, there's one more comment I want to make on those, on those questions. If, if sure. you want, and that has to do with, is my business even marketable? And uh, we have outlets through uh, our organization 
where we can do a marketability assessment, uh, no cost at all to the, to the client. And we have literally 25 different M&A firms that our firm, Lincoln Financial Advisor, Stagemore Consulting, has done due diligence on. And we can do a free marketability assessment where those investment bankers that's appropriate for their industry can give an idea of what, what the business is worth. So tying that in is let's say the business is worth X, but when we do the financial planning based on what they need for financial independence, they need X plus $5 million. I'm just making the number up. Well, what planning can we do? And I know that's a lot of the work you do with clients, Michael, to make the business more valuable to fill up that value gap. And what things can we do to make the business more valuable? Those, those are some key things that we work on. That's just one, one of the things in those eight questions I just wanted to bring up because that's a real important planning perspective. Yeah. And from, from two perspectives, Gary, I mean, it's one is, you know, what are the value drivers of the company and, you know, what can we do to, you know, implement uh, a business, you know, operating system, I like to call it, you know, when, when we're working with family businesses, especially, um, and what can we do to make, you know, put more systems and processes in place so that you move from a place where it's owner dependent to a place where it's self-operating, right? I mean, that's, that's the key. But then the other piece is, you know, through the network that we have in the, you know, in the M&A world, one of the things that has happened more frequently than, you know, than I think people, you know, expect is when, you know, when they do, you know, when it's time to take the family business out to market, the family, we don't have a family member that's ready to, to run this or a family member that wants to run the business. It's just time, you know, it's not a failure to sell a business. You know, they, they always talk a lot about the shirt sleeves, the shirt sleeves and three generations. Well, I like to knock that misnomer out of the park because it's pretty, you know, successful to build a business up to the third or fourth generation and then say, you know what? in order for the family to stay sitting at the Thanksgiving dinner table or, you know, the holiday dinner table together, um, it's in the best interest for the family to sell the business and allow people to cash out and go do, do some of their own things to keep that piece of the legacy going. Well, through the M&A company that we've worked with, how many times, you know, have they come in and said, you know, the value of the company's $40 million and the owner, you know, said over and over again, I have had this number pegged at 40 million. I know it's 40 million. You know, it's been valued 13 times through the years, you know, and then we take it out to the market. And because of the bidding process, you know, that 40 million gets driven up to 50 or $53 million. And there's, you know, there's some multiple higher than what the owner was expecting because the private equity group or the, you know, the M&A firm that, you know, was able to put this deal together just had the right contacts that to them, that business was more valuable to the Well, to the in, in addition, it's so key and so important to use specialists that do this. Right. So we, we had a situation in our firm that somebody came and offered this, uh, this family business of 38 million for their business. And it was, it was a private equity firm that was so excited. We 
took a look at it and we did our marketability assessment and we saw it was worth a lot more. So we went through the blind bidding process with an investment banker in their industry. Everything was confidential. They ended up getting not 38 million, they got, the guy ended up getting 65 million. But this is the crazy thing about the story. You know who offered the 65 million? The same private equity firm that originally came to them for 38 without wow. the bidding process. Wow. So it's so important to use a specialist. Yeah. And, and it, you know, it's funny. We just helped a, a company sell their business that was on the market for $30 million. They got about $27 million for it. And the reason why they, in my opinion, they received the 27 million is because they didn't use a specialist. They didn't bring, you know, uh, a business sale expertise in there who would have packaged them beforehand. And Jerry, you've seen this before, I'm sure, where they didn't have their financials in order. Everything wasn't clean. The systems and processes weren't in place. So the other company just kept pegging them down, pegging them down, pegging them down. And even though just the real estate, this happened to be a, a development company, was working worth those pieces they had it was run like a family business you know when I you know I say run by a family that was happened to be in business and it just wasn't clean and so they were just able to take every discount that they could in there um I want to change gears and 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 Jerry um you know one of the next things I want to really focus in on is how it is how coordinating your state and the business planning can really save a family, you know, as much as 20 to 40% in taxes, whether it's at the sale time or estate planning time, or just putting all these pieces together. Why is it so important to coordinate? Yeah, well, you're absolutely right. Like, so, uh, you know, you know, as Gary mentioned, when you're passing it on in a family, you're trying to get the lowest value possible and it's all in the discounts, right? So I have a business that I know is worth $30 million. But if I can slice it and dice it and give a slice of it, uh, you know, you'll get a discount of 35 to 40 percent. And that value simply disappears from the estate tax world completely, never to be subject to estate tax. So, you know, with the estate tax, definitely going to change, definitely going to go up. I know we haven't talked about that much, but, you know, the proposal in Congress that Bernie Sanders has put forth and he's head of the you know, the finance uh, committee in the Senate now, scary as that may be to business owners, you know, his proposals to increase the top rate to 60% from the current 40% the estate tax rate and to do away with the step up in basis, which, you know, is another tax on top of it. And when you add the New York tax, which soon will go from 16 to 20% under legislation that's going to be passed in the next week or so, you know, you could be talking about, you know, 60 to 70% of your estate disappearing in estate taxes if you don't plan properly. And if the business is your biggest asset, then you want to set up a mechanism where you can take advantage of those discounts, perhaps make gifts, but still find a way to have a string on it so that you can potentially, you or your spouse can potentially get the income in case there's a big home run that's hit somewhere down the road and you decide, well, it's great. I said state tax, but I haven't got enough money to live on now. I want some of it back. So there are all ways to do that. You just have to be careful, think through what you're really trying to do. As I'm sure with you guys, particularly when you talk to a client, you're telling them, let's not let the tax tail wag the dog and give away so much that you're impoverishing yourself with no way to get it back. But it is critical to do it or else you're going to lose just a ton of money if something should happen before you do something. Great. 
Gary, anything to add to that? No, no. Uh, well said. It's uh, it's it's critical to look at planning this year because of the proposals. The proposals from the Democrats, the one that Bernie Sanders' uh, office submitted, uh, I think it was last uh, last Thursday or Thursday before. It's not a Thursday. Was uh, also to potentially get rid of uh, the discounts as well. So this is and. The, the, the step up in basis, there was actually two bills uh, submitted, one by uh, the House from uh, Pasquale from New Jersey and one from a senator from Maryland, Van Houten or something like that. Uh, but the, Demo the House bill for the step up in basis was going to be effective January 1st, 2022. The Senate bill is actually retroactive to January 1st of this year which includes any gifts. Now, nothing's been passed. Uh, so what some people are, if you're nervous about which one's gonna be passed, we, we can do things as loans. And then as soon as you know what the rules are, and let's say it's effective, uh, hopefully January 1st, 2022, you forgive the loan, so there's your gift, but you don't have to worry about making a big, a big taxable gift. Uh, actually, Speaking of taxable gifts, if these new laws come through, many people who have significant wealth will consider taxable gifts because the Democrats' proposal is taking the exemption from 11 million seven to 3.5 million at death, but the amount that you can gift during your lifetime uh, right now is unified. It's 11 million seven you can give during your lifetime and 11 million seven at death. The proposals to the from the Democrats is to reduce the amount that you can give during your lifetime to 1 million per parent. So that'll be a big, big change. Now, when people pass away, they're proposing to take the rate, uh, anything over 11 million seven now is at 40%. The proposal is to take the rate over three and a half million to 45%. Anything over 10 million, 50%, this is only the federal, that doesn't include New York. Um, uh, and then anything over uh, uh, 50 million or 55%. And then if you're lucky enough to um, be the investors that with the home runs, like Michael can recommend these, and you can be over a billion dollars, that's actually uh, at 60%. Uh, but we work with a lot of family businesses that are definitely in the 10 to 50 million and some over, over 50 million. So in New York, as Jerry's saying, if these proposals all come through, the tax for people over 50 million could be 70, 75%, it's insane. And that's why taxable <clears throat> gifts maybe make sense because the gift tax will still be at 40%. It's important to understand just how radical these proposals are. We don't know if they'll be enacted, but most countries, you either lose a step up and pay capital gains when you die, or you pay an estate tax. I don't know of any developed country where you do both, where you don't get the step up and you pay the estate tax. So they, you know, it's really, uh, it's really a war on wealth type proposal that the Democrats put out there, and something we need to keep our eye on. Right. The name of it is for the ninety nine point five percent act. So that's, I think that's, it's pretty much telling you where what they're what they're gearing after. Yeah. And, and I just want to caveat, nothing has been passed. 
Yeah. Right. It's got to yeah. go through committees and you have to have every single Democrat say yes, plus the vice president to say yes. Now, can they do that? Yes, they can. They just did that with the recent stimulus plan, but they had a couple of uh, senators, especially Senator Manchin from West Virginia, that's a little bit more conservative and they backed off on some things. So from a negotiating, negotiating style, they're asking for everything. I'm sure Bernie Sanders wants all those things. Uh, candidly, I think it would be a challenge for every senator to vote for that. Now, the way the current uh, system works in order to pass these programs and make them permanent, you need 60 votes in the Senate, unless they do something called reconciliation. And reconciliation uh, historically has only been once a fiscal year. So they just used that reconciliation uh, just this past couple of weeks ago when they passed the 1.9 trillion. So the next reconciliation would, because fiscal year is October 1st, October 1st. Now there was something in the news just yesterday where the Senate parliamentarian did say there's a possibility they may be able to use reconciliation three times this year, uh, but that's still not defined. And Jerry may have read more about that. I just heard it on the Bloomberg News this morning, which means they're trying to use that for the infrastructure bill. Uh, so there's a lot of negotiations that have to happen, has to go through committees. So will the things stay the same as they are now? Highly unlikely. Will it be as um, uh, progressive as these proposals? Um, probably not, but you never know. J Jerry, your thoughts? I'm sure you've been reading. Yeah, no, I, I think you hit the nail on the head, Gary. I agree 100%. I think what you'll end up seeing is the exemption amount lowered from 11.7 to in the six to seven million dollar range per person. I don't think you'll see much change with the rate. I think you may see a loss of step up, but I think there'll be a, a, a threshold above which, uh, below which you won't lose a step up. They're talking about a million dollars right now. So assets, because the, the problem with the loss of the step up, of course, is that it, it, it's almost impossible for people to go back and trace what the basis was for their parents and certain assets. I mean, that's a huge undertaking. So the thought is, well, we'll exempt the first million dollars of assets from that, and you don't get a step up for assets above that. I wouldn't be surprised to see something like that take place. Um, so I think there will be changes, uh, but I don't think they'll be nearly as radical as Bernie would like to have us think they will be. Yeah. I as we're talking about this, one of my favorite things to do is just talk about a quote from Supreme Court Justice Learned Hand. You both have probably heard this at one point or another, but for our listeners, I just want to share this real quick. Anyone may arrange his or her affairs so that his taxes shall be as low as possible. He is not bound to choose that pattern which best pays the treasury. There is not even a patriotic, patriotic duty to increase one's taxes. Over and over again, the courts have said that there is nothing sinister in so arranging affairs as to keep taxes as low as possible. Everyone does it, rich and poor alike, and all do right, for nobody owes any public duty to pay more than the law demands. And so, you know, as we, we talk about these things, it just reminds me that there's laws that are set up 
And, you know, I think about, you know, you don't have to be extremely smart to take advantage of these things. This is not about smarts. This is about hiring the right people. And, you know, we, we look at Tony Shea just died. The guy, you know, created Zappos and had no will. So I'm like, I mean, that just was mind blowing to me. I understood when, you know, um, Prince died and didn't have a will. And you see that a lot of times with, you know, famous entertainers um, because they're, you know, really keyed in on the art. But typically from a business owner, they've got the right attorneys. They've got the right pe you know, people around them. And for Tony Shea from Zappos to not have those things in place just was mind blowing to me. Um, so Mike, we're talking about the super, super wealthy. Uh, there have been some things that even a, a year or two ago, actually the end of 19, the Republicans actually passed something that was a tax revenue raiser, and that was the SECURE Act. There's some positive things in the SECURE Act for people with retirement plans where they made the required minimum distribution. It used to be 70 and a half. They increased that to 72, and they did some other things to put more money away. What they did do on the other side is they changed, when you take money out of a retirement plan, it used to be for anybody who's not your spouse, it used to be that they could take the money out over their life expectancy. Right. The rules have changed. Now, there are some exceptions to the rules where they can still take it out over their life expectancy if they're under 18, if they're disabled, uh, if your spouse is more than 10 years younger than you, a couple of things like that. But for the most part, most of the clients that we work with that have accumulated funds in their retirement plans, their spouse is the beneficiary, and then the kids are the uh, contingent beneficiary. So if you have to take the money out over 10 years, let me, let me give you a, a quick example. Let's say somebody who's 62 years old has, and this is not something that's a rarity, has a million and a half in their IRA from 401ks or pension plans and things of that sort. Well, they don't take, touch the money and they wait till 72, that could, have, that could go to $3 million. Now, when they stay, start the required minimum distributions, those required minimum distributions will be 120 to 150,000 a year, which is all taxable income, which means it's probably gonna bump those people into a higher bracket. In addition, God forbid, uh, both spouses don't die at the same time, and you have a surviving spouse, single taxpayers are at a higher rate than married. So when they start to require minimum distributions, that's gonna pop them up into a higher bracket if there's a surviving spouse. In addition, when the kids get the money, if it comes out over 10 years, it's gonna pop the kids into a higher bracket. So if somebody, is exited their business and is retired, they sometimes between 62 and 72 are like in a sandwich where they're in a lower bracket. Well, what we're recommending for a lot of people is take a look at those retirement plans and maybe take distributions to take advantage of the low brackets before either you, your spouse, or your kids become in a higher bracket. So there's a lot of planning to do with that. 
Uh, but also I wanted to emphasize retirement plans, life insurance, annuities, all passed by beneficiary. So- They're not controlled by the will. Yeah, so Jerry can put together the fanciest will made in the history of uh, the uh, state of New York and the city of Syracuse. Uh, but if the beneficiary designations are not coordinated with the planning, then those assets can be all subject to creditors and predators, especially life insurance subject to tax. So I thought, Jerry, maybe you can address a little bit about how the collaboration and the coordination of the titling of the assets is critical from a wealth transfer standpoint for retirement plans, life insurance, and then even regular assets being titled properly to take advantage of all those, uh, as my learning hand says, to uh, take advantage of what the government has given us because it's voluntary. You volunteer to use these things, you get to use them. If you volunteer not to use them, you lose them. No, you're absolutely right, Gary. So it's fundamental when you start the estate planning process, you get an accurate description of all the assets and how those assets are titled. Because you're right, your will or revocable trust will only act with respect to assets which are in your name, what we refer to as probate assets. You know, certain assets, jointly held assets, aren't going to be affected by that. So if you hold your accounts jointly with someone else, then by operational law, they're going to pass to the other joint tenant. Uh, retirement plans, as you mentioned, are going to accord to the beneficiary designation. Life insurance is going to go according to the beneficiary designation. So you can said you can put together a great will, a great revocable trust, and have it not effective for a lot of the assets that may well make up the bulk of your estate because it's not unusual to see clients who have tremendous amounts sacked away in retirement plans or have insurance to cover the unexpected scenarios. So it's critical to get the beneficiary designations, make sure everything fits together. That's the most common mistake we see of people putting together these state plans is they forget to do that final step. So good point. Yeah, and Jerry, maybe you can also chat about the years ago, if I'm looking back uh, when Michael and I started in the business 25, 30 years ago, many people had their assets go to their kids in stages like 25, 30, 35. Now the majority of people that have wealth set up lifetime trusts to protect the children from creditors and predators. Can you can you address that for a, a little bit? Yeah, so, you know, there, there has been a change. So uh, we're seeing two things, either lifetime trust or coming out of trust at a much later age in life than, uh, than what we used to see. So when I started practice, you see 21, 25, you know, 28. Now it's either lifetime, as you mentioned, or it is, you know, 40, 45, 50, or 45, 50, 55, something like that to stagger it out. So the advantage of keeping a trust for a lifetime is protected from creditors. If a child gets involved in a uh, creditor situation, has an accident, or gets some financial trouble, protects it in the event of divorce, although a prenuptial agreement is still the best protection. Trust is a backup and a good protection as well, because in almost every state, Assets that you inherit from your parents are not considered marital assets in the event of the divorce unless you commingle them. And if so, if I inherit a million dollars from my dad and I put it in a joint account and I put it in a joint account for five minutes because I'm going to set up a separate account, it loses its status as separate property 
it becomes subject to the claims of my spouse in the event of high divorce. So uh, a lifetime trust protects that situation as well. Plus, if you have the GST exemption, we don't know what's going to happen to that because that was another proposal in Bernie's thing is to do away with generation skipping transfers. But if you had a GST exemption, you can postpone that tax event on the death of the child and to the grandchildren or the great-grandchildren or great-grandchildren died. So you can save tremendous, solve the estate tax problem your children may have if you do it correctly. Always uh, difficult to pick the right trustees for that period of time. Child can be one. We always like to have an independent as well. But generally give the child the right to remove the independent trustee replacement to not getting along. So the, the key of that is talking through and getting the right trustees so everybody's comfortable what's going to happen 30, 40, 50 years down the road to the extent we can control it. Yeah, right. a big misnomer when people hear the word generation skipping is they think it skips the kids. It skips the tax. Right. Exactly right. Great point. Um, one of the things that, you know, I've seen through my career is I'll meet a business owner and they've been, they've used the same financial advisor or the same attorney or same accountant that they had when they started their practice, you know, their business and it wasn't worth anything. And now, you know, they've, they've been successful and they've done a great job. And, you know, the, you hate to talk about it this way. And I don't know, I'm, I'm just, maybe the two of you can help me with this conversation a little bit, but the person that they're working with, the professional that they've been using, um, it's not a Jerry Stack. It's not a Gary Katz or a Michael Columbus. They don't, they don't look at it, you know, from all aspects. They don't understand that, you know, a lot of things have changed at the well, level of wealth that they are today than when they started working with them. What are some questions people should be expecting their professionals to be asking them, you know, to, or when should they start to question whether it's time for me to change what league I'm in? Well, it'd be, uh, you know, I think the jumping off point is always what's the potential estate tax if I were to die today? And has your attorney or advisors projected it out for you? And have they given you any options to reduce it? You know, because there's a menu of things that someone can consider uh, if they're facing an estate tax. But, but first you need to know, are you facing an estate tax? Have you put together a financial uh, snapshot of where you're at and what you expect is gonna happen? And what is the potential estate tax? and it's due nine months after both spouses die, how are you gonna pay for it? Uh, and if you don't wanna pay that amount at estate tax, or you don't wanna get insurance to cover the, the amount of tax, what are the options that are available where I can make transfers and reduce that number to what it ought to be? Now, your advisors ought to be having that conversation with you initially and then sitting down once a year or once every, every, every other year in a worst case scenario, to see if everything's still on track, whether things change, what's changed in your life. And, but as important as that, have they sat down and talked to you honestly about where you want your estate to go and how do you want it to go? Because that's as important or more important than what the taxes are. You know, tell me where it is that you want your estate to go. Do you want to trust your children? Do you want to outright to your children? What about to the spouse? Should be in trust? Should be outright? What's the advantages and disadvantages? When would you consider a trust for a spouse when you may not consider it? Those are the conversations that ought to be taking place 
once a year anyways. And if they're not taking place, then maybe you ought to question whether you have the wrong advisor. Yeah, so just to add on that, I, I, I'm going to give analog a couple of analogies. So when you're getting a health checkup, you go to your internist. The internist hears something on your heart and says, okay, go to a cardiologist. Then the cardiologist listens to your heart, says, okay, try this medicine, this medicine, that medicine. Oh, we see you have blockage. Now you have to go to a cardiac surgeon. So the, the world is a world of specialties and it's a world of collaboration. When we, when we work with a family, we're typically not replacing their other advisors. We're an add-on and the specialists are add-ons. You're not gonna, unless you work with a large firm that has all these different departments, it's, it's, it's a golf analogy. I don't play golf, but I do know what a mulligan is. You, if you don't do this right, you don't get a mulligan if you pass away. Right. You, didn't, you didn't use these, these different tools. But it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a collaboration. So yeah. it's almost as crude as, uh, Michael, if you had something wrong with your heart, would, would you go to your uh, podiatrist to save money to, to, to fix your heart? Right. Well, like he's got it, a doctor. He's a doctor. Or she's a doctor. Not so it's funny. It's funny because I'm working with a pediatrician that uh, has been very uh, fortunate that he bought the building, bought other practices. So significant, significant net worth. And he was asking, can I go back to my original attorney? And we looked him up. We said, well, he could be on the calls. We can collaborate. But I'm going to ask you a question, doctor. You're a pediatrician. If a family member or a, a, a patient or a patient's parent says, I need open heart surgery, what would you say? Because I wouldn't do it. I'd kill them. <laughs> so it just... It's a world of specialty and collaboration. Uh, once you get to a different level, you need, you need specialists to bring it to another level. Not meaning you have to replace the, uh, the original people. Right. They're, they're add-ons to bring to the team and it's a collaboration process. Yeah. And, and it's, it is tough. It, it is tough. You know, when you're, when you're talking on the attorney side or the, the, the accountant side or the financial advisor side, wherever, wherever that person sits, you know, it's, I, I tell people when it, when you're looking at a financial advisor, the, the three things that kind of poke out at me is if they're not asking to read your trust and, and your will, the odds are they don't understand it. If they're not asking to read your tax return, they're probably, you know, they don't understand it. And that's why they don't. There was a time 10, 20 years ago that I didn't ask people for their you know, the, the, the business, you know, returns or the, or the financials of the business, because I didn't understand them. So I learned them so that I, you know, could bring them in and, and coordinate those pieces. And the same thing would go for the buy-sell agreement. Where I think it gets sticky sometimes is understanding the level of expertise. You know, we like to work with Jerry Stack and, you know, it's, 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 you really understand your, where you're coming from, your, Easy, you're collaborative and easy to work with. But here's the point is that, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a client, if I go get somebody that says, you know, they has the shingle on their thing that says business and estate, I don't know the difference sometimes between what Jerry brings or the accounting firm that I'm working with versus 
that level. So I guess, you know, how do you understand, you know, Jerry, for, from your perspective, how do you help, how do people answer that question or figure that out? Yeah, that's a tough one because, you know, you start with the assumption your advisors are smart, right? I mean, because they went to college, they went to law school, they got to CPA or whatever. So you start with the assumption they're really smart, they know what they're doing. And it's tough for, for a client to figure it out, you know, uh, you know, whether they're really getting the good advice or not getting the good advice. That's a tough one to answer. Like, I don't know what, I don't know how you do that to, to tell the client really to, to figure it out. Other than, you know, what we, what we like to do is like you guys do too, not replace the current advisor, just help them. You know I mean? And we always try to make clear, look, I'm not trying to steal your client. I want to work with you to get a good result for your clients. And then they're happy and then they're happier with you than they were before because you brought a specialist in to help and you helped solve their problem. You were part of the solution as opposed to being a blockade to get the solution done. So, you know, we always try to make that pitch. That's a really good point, Jerry, is that if your advisor isn't meeting with the rest of the advisors, probably at least every two years, that's probably a pretty good indication that they might be in a protective mode. That's, uh, that's great. I'm gonna ask, you know, I, I think we're at the top of the hour here. Um, we've got a couple extra minutes. If either of you have parting words or things that, you know, that we didn't get a chance to talk about um, before we wrap up, what's, you know, how would you, what would you want people to know how to reach you, number one, and two, just any parting thoughts on things that we didn't cover today that you'd hoped we would? You know, I, I think if I'd start, Gary, I, I just think we're in a critical period in our history. Uh, you know, things are going to change radically uh, for the worse, I think. You know, it may not change that radically this year, but I think it's probably a question of time as attitudes in this country change and younger people seem to look at things differently than we look at things. So I, I do think that uh, this year uh, you're in a unique position to take some steps to save your family money. I think that window's gonna close, if not this year, probably next year, the year after. You know, Gary's absolutely right, 50-50 divide the Senate, but there's an election in two years, right? And maybe Democrats get control or they may get DC statehood, in which case they're guaranteed to get two more senators. So changes are coming. And uh, it's time now to pay attention to it. Think about what you can do and don't hesitate any longer because talking about estate planning is so difficult for people because they don't want to think about dying. Uh, most of us firmly believe it's never going to happen to us. It's just uh, uh, wrongfully, but that's, that's our belief. Gary. Great. Just a quick uh, parting words is I would say the key aspect is to take an inventory and have somebody do some type of analysis of what your exposure is and that way, and do a review of what the coordination gaps are. Uh, and that, that, that's frankly what Michael and I do with lots of people. Listen, we'd love you to come to Michael and I to help you, but it's important to go to somebody to help you. To, and you gotta work with a financial person, the accountant, the estate attorney, it's gotta be a collaboration and somebody's gotta be the quarterback. Typically it's somebody in the role that Michael and I lead as the coordinator. Again, we don't do everything, we gotta work and collaborate. That's, that's the key thing. And as Jerry says, 
this is the year that's so important to get things done while we still have these tools available uh, because we may go some time without these tools available. And who knows what's gonna come back. Listen, uh, they made your social security taxable if you make over like $40,000 a year, 85% uh, of social security was to be taxed. People said they were gonna get rid of that very, very quickly and social security is gonna be tax free. Medicare, when Lyndon Johnson, I just know this from history, I was, I was too young for that. We all were too young for that, right, Jerry? When Lyndon Johnson passed Medicare, the Republicans were like, that's only going to be very temporary. It's, it's going to go away because it's socialized medicine. Well, here we are over 50 years later. Uh, and so there are many things that we thought, and listen, Obamacare, the same thing. Who could have imagined John McClain putting the thumbs down? Uh, so McCain, so you don't know what's going to come back. So failing to plan is planning to fail. That's my, that's my parting words. And to get in touch with me, call, call Michael, because we work together. <laughs> well, thank you, everybody, for joining us on another wonderful episode of the Family Biz Show. I'm your host, Michael Columbus, with Family Wealth and Legacy in Rochester, New York. And really, really enjoyed having you both here and sharing all of this fabulous stuff. Um, be sure to check out uh, further episodes and you can enrich your learning when it comes to family businesses. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening to The Family Biz Show. We appreciate your time and trust to deliver the best guests and most cutting edge information to help you maximize your family business. Being part of a family is tough. Add a business to that and it gets even tougher. Tune in next week as we strive to ease your journey with The Family Biz Show. The content presented is for informational and educational purposes. The information covered and posted are views and opinions of the guests and not necessarily those of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Michael Columbus is a registered representative of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Securities and investment advisory services offered through Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation, a broker dealer, member SIPC, and registered investment advisor. Insurance offered through Lincoln Financial Affiliates and other fine companies. Family Wealth and Legacy LLC is not an affiliate of Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation. Lincoln Financial Advisors Corporation and its representatives do not provide legal or tax advice. You may want to consult a legal or tax advisor regarding any legal or tax information as it relates to your personal circumstances.